Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Week before last, I went into what I call the maximally great argument against Calvinism. And the premise, the, the argument has several steps. It's a philosophical argument, but the premises are backed up with scripture. And the reason I did that is because you can quote Bible verses at the Calvinist all day long, but they have such an uncanny way of wiggling around what the text obviously says in plain English, or plain Greek for that matter. Uh, you could quote John 3, 16 to 18 to them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. And let's say, oh, well, the world, well, who's the world? Well, any unbiased reader would think that that means everyone, everyone who is a part of the world, every single person you ever meet, anyone who is a part of the world. Osama, and even Osama bin Laden was a part of the world. Adolf Hitler was a part of the world. I'm a part of the world. You're a part of the world. Um, O.J. Simpson is a part of the world. Donald Trump is a part of the world. Um, if you meet a human being, he is a part of the world. God And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does giving his only begotten son mean? Well, he died. We later find that out in the Gospel of John. That's what it meant to give his only begotten son. Jesus died on the cross to atone for the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said in John 1.21. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Jesus take away the sin of the world? 1 John 2.2 2 says that he died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But the Calvinists will say, oh, well, that only means the world of the elect. The world in which the elect inhabit. That's what that means. It doesn't mean what it looks like it means. Well, what is whosoever? Well, you know, there's some Greek there. It doesn't really mean whosoever out of the world. Uh, you can quote 1 Timothy 2.4, which says, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And 1 Timothy 2.6, which says, Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for all men. Oh, well, that only means all kinds of men. You know, uh, like... Japanese and Israelites and Americans, uh, some Chinese, some Israelites, some Americans, some British people, all kinds of men. Uh, uh, well, okay, uh, that scripture didn't phase you. Well, what about 2 Corinthians 5.15? And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Oh, well, again, uh, it, it's just all of the elect, or, you know, all who God has chosen. Wiggle, 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 wiggle. And so that's why I came up with the maximally great argument against Calvinism. I'm like, I'm like okay, you're given, this, you're given the Word of God 
the wax nose treatment and trying to make it fit with your preconceived theology. You're not letting the Bible be naked. Allusion to Michael Heiser there. Uh, so I'm going to come up with an argument where it's a lot harder to do that because it's a deductive argument and I just have to, I will use scripture to support the premises, but I, none of the scriptures I'm going to use are going to explicitly say that God wants all people saved and Jesus died for all people and all that. So if you haven't listened uh, to that episode, go back and listen to it. But even still, some people may have listened to that episode. They may have listened to the episode I had with David Paulman a few weeks back in which we looked at 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4 and how Calvinists try to get around that. And they'll say, but, but what about Romans 9? What about Romans 9? This is the Calvinist's favorite proof text. In fact, I have had some Calvinists literally say to me, oh, well, you'd be a Calvinist if you just read Romans 9. And I, I just, I can't, I, I can't even. That's so millennial of me to say that, but I can't even. Like, what do they think? Do they think that when I'm reading the Bible and I get to Romans, I, like, read through the first eight chapters, like, okay, I'm going to go skip over to chapter 10, not even going to read chapter 9. It's like, yeah, I've read Romans 9. I've read it several times. I'm still not a Calvinist. And you know why? It's because I interpret it in its context. Um, let's look at that passage. I'm going to exegete that passage. This is going to be the topic of the whole podcast episode this week. It's going to be, what does Romans 9 actually teach? Does it teach unconditional election? Well, many Calvinists think that it does, and the reason they think that it does is because there are certain verses in Romans 9 which, when taken out of context, certainly makes it seem like the doctrine of unconditional election. For example, there, uh, in um, not chapter 9, verse 14, verse 14 says, what, sh what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, that kind of makes it sound like, sounds like that God is just kind of picking and choosing whom he has mercy on, and, you know, other, those who he chooses not to have mercy on, he sends them to hell. It's just, okay, I, I choose you, I don't choose you, I choose you, I don't choose you. And then they go on. Well, I mean, after all, verses 16 to 17 say, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God... Uh, this is verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Surely this means that God... I mean, these verses, they seem so clear, don't they? God just, he wants to... He has mercy on some whom he wants to have mercy on, and then other people, you know, he doesn't care about. So he hardens them. Like Pharaoh. Case closed. Checkmate, Arminian. Well... Don't close the <laughs> Don't move the chess piece just yet. Uh, I contend that the Calvinist is taking these verses, and actually the whole chapter, out of context. 
Chapter 9 is actually part of an entire thought process, an entire argumentation on Paul's part. He is trying to deal with accusations of God being unjust, but it's not for what the Calvinist is saying. Paul is not trying to defend unconditional election. But let, let's, not skip ahead, let's not skip ahead here. Um, perhaps I should play some transition music. No, I'm not going to do it this, this week. But let's get into it. In the early part of Romans, Paul touches upon the subject as to whether there is benefit in being Jewish if you fail to strictly adhere to God's law. That's in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 13 and verse 21. He men Paul mentions that there are some advantage of being Jewish, of course, such as being the very people to whom God's inspired revelation is directly given, for example. I mean, the, the scriptures were given to the Jews. That's, that's one advantage. That's what Paul says. They were given the oracles of God. Nevertheless, one's lineage doesn't grant one God's automatic favor. What Paul says instead is, no, being ethically Jewish doesn't mean, doesn't automatically mean you're saved and are in right standing before God. Rather, and this is what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, quote, He is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is of the heart, spiritual and not literal, end quote. The apostle wrote that, quote, no human being will be justified in God's sight by works of the law, end quote. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Rather, quote, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, end quote. Chapter 3, verse 29. That includes Gentiles as well as Jews. And in between there, in between verses 20 and 29, we have that famous universal salvation um, universal salvation passage where Paul talks about how all people have sinned before the glory of God. And he quotes Psalm chapter 14, which says, God looks from heaven on all mankind. Are there any good? Are there any who seek God? Nope. All are corrupt. Y'all are all trash. <laughs> that's my... That's my Mintonian paraphrase. Uh, in between verses 20 and 29, we have that whole everybody is, everybody's a sinner, everybody is under the power of sin, and everybody has done wrong before God. And Paul goes on to say, quote, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. End quote. That's in chapter 3, verses 29 to 30, uh, the second half of verse 29. To Paul's Jewish audience, this would have been an outrageous thing to say. We really have to appreciate just how uh, shocking this would be to the original audience of of the epistle uh, to the Romans, to say that Gentiles, who were considered to be unclean by the Jews of that day, to say that they could be more Jewish than ethnic Jews and be allowed into heaven while the condemned Israelites uh, are sent to judgment? I mean, 
if Paul had, weren't writing this in a letter, if he were saying this in person, he it probably would have gotten him stoned. Contrast why Paul's ministry eclipsed that of Peter's. Peter put so much emphasis on his Jewishness at the vision at Joppa, and Paul uh, even rebuked Peter for putting so much importance on circumcision. This was the thrust of Paul's ministry, one of inclusion of the one of inclusion of the Gentiles, not of exclusion. That's what Romans 9 drives at. Paul appeals to Abraham to support what he's saying. Paul tells us that Abraham was pronounced righteous in God's sight even before he was circumcised. He writes, quote, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them, and likewise the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also follow the example of faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. End quote. That's in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. In other words, uh, God, uh, Paul, well, I guess God is saying it through Paul, uh, that Abraham is sort of an example, he's sort of an example to the Jews and the Gentiles, because he was reckoned righteous, before he even got circumcised. But he was also circumcised as well, and he entered into the the Abrahamic covenant, and so he's he's got a foot in both worlds, so to speak. The majority of Jewish people at that time believed that God's faithfulness towards them depended on two things. One, their Jewish ethnicity, and two, their strict adherence to the Mosaic Law their Jewish ethnicity, and their strict adherence to the Jewish law. In fact, if you remember, even John the Baptist uh, spoke against this uh, during one of his fiery sermons in which uh, he said, I, I can't remember the chapter and verse, but it's, it's he said, uh, don't say to yourselves, he was preaching repentance, and John the Baptist says, don't say to yourselves, we're children of Abraham. I tell you, God can take these stones and make them a, ch a child of Abraham. He he could take this pile of rocks and make them into a child of Abraham. So, um, ethnicity does not matter. If you had that mindset, if you had the mindset that your Jewish ethnicity and your strict adherence to the Torah was what made you right with God, then you would probably, you would probably be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, if Paul is right... If anyone can be saved, Jew or Gentile, simply on the basis of faith, not not on not on the basis of good works, not on Torah observance, then what is the point of being a Jew? What is the point of, of adhering so tightly to the law? Confer Galatians 5.12. Paul's message seemed to undermine the uniqueness of the Jewish identity and calling. But even worse is that those two things that the Jews put so much stock in, their ethnicity and adherence to Torah, seem to be the very thing working against their salvation. Because they strove for righteousness based on obeying Old Testament law, rather than having faith in the Lord Jesus, their hearts were hardened, as evidenced by the faith that so few Jewish people became Christians. Uh, we see Romans chapter 9 verses 31 to 32. From the perspective of the Jewish audience, 
Paul's gospel seemed to entail that the very people God made covenant promises to were now being rejected by God. Ergo, it looked like the word of God had failed. This is, this is why Paul says in Ch Romans chapter 9, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God had failed, because that's what people were thinking. Wait a minute. Um, Paul, in chapter 9, verse 6, Paul denies that God's word has failed. It is the case, as he says in, in uh, the second half of verse 6 and in verse 7, that, quote, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Ab and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his descendants. Uh, Paul's Paul's point is that being a racial Jew is not a sufficient condition for salvation. It, it's not a necessary condition either, but you get the point. Instead, you have to be a quote child of the promise, and I, I remember. I remembered the, the verse. It's Matthew 3, 9. Actually, I didn't remember it. I just quickly looked it up while, <laughs> while you were distract, distracted. Um, yeah, what John the Baptist said, God can raise up descendants of Abraham from stones. Genetic pedigree is insufficient for being a child of the promise. So, what Paul... The theological conundrum that Paul is attempting to tackle is not how God could be justified in light of the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. Rather, the issue Paul is tackling is how God's chosen people, i.e. the Jews, could fail to obtain salvation while the Gentiles succeeded. After all, Gentiles were considered by Jewish people as unclean. How could these unclean Gentiles obtain salvation from their sins but not the Jews? Is God being unfair? Is God being unjust? Is he saying, hey, y'all used to be my people and you pleased me by obeying all of my laws. Um, but now I reject you because of your strict adherence to the law. I'm going to save these Gentile folks over here simply because they asked me to. Is that what God is doing? Well, that's what Paul's audience thought that God was doing. And Paul is, is giving an apologetic here. He, he, he defends God's uh, integrity. Uh, and he does so by appealing to two different things. One, God's sovereignty. And two, the teachings of the Old Testament. First, Paul appeals to God's sovereignty by saying that he has the he has the freedom to save whoever he wants to save, and one cannot dispute the Almighty. This is why Paul says in those verses that I quoted earlier, uh, what, shall we what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. So what Paul is saying here is not, oh, hey, who are you? why are you complaining to God? God can... God can send anyone to hell if he wants to, and he could just arbitrarily save whoever he wants to. Ha! Huh. No, what he's saying is, hey, why are you complaining that Gentiles are being saved, and why are you... 
you know, God can have mercy on whomever he wants. He's sovereign. And if Yahweh wants to forgive unclean Gentiles if he wants to, that is his right. Moreover, God has the right to set the criteria for salvation. If God wants to save Gentile Bob because he had faith in Jesus and reject Jewish Zacharias because he's trying to work his way salvation to salvation by uh, adhering to Torah as tightly as he can, who are you to condemn him? He's sovereign. If God says you must be saved by faith, not, not by trying to observe the law of Moses, you can't indict God for being unfair. He's sovereign. He has the right to save whoever he wants to save by whatever means he wants to save them. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 15. And also, verse 20. This is why Paul says, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? No, God is, Paul is not saying, hey, who are you to talk back to God? Unconditional, you have no right to say that God causally determined, that you have no right to object to God causally determining people to sin and then sending them to hell for the, the sins he caused them to commit. That's not what it's about at all. And the context, which I've just talked about, I went through chapters 3 and 4 and and. Chapter 9 is part of a long thought process. Now, after appealing to the sovereignty of God, Paul made his counter-argument stronger by uh, turning to the Old Testament. He appealed to God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael and of Jacob over Esau. He, he talks about this in, verse, in chapter 9, verses 10 to 13. Uh, in Chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, uh, he says, quote, Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who called, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's verses 10 to 13, and then in verse 14 he says, what shall we say is God unjust, and, and those, those verses I just quoted. Um, Paul also quotes Hosea 2.23. Hosea 2.23 says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Now, lest you think that Paul is, was referring to the persons, Jacob and Esau, allow me to point out that Romans 9 is not talking about the individuals. It's talking about the nations that descended from them. Esau, never, Esau the individual, never served Jacob the individual. But the Edomites did serve the Israelites. Genesis 25, 13. Two nations are fighting within you. Thinking the passage is referring to unconditional election of these two individuals is wrong-headed. It rips uh, Paul's use of the Old Testament out of its context. It just fails to understand the Old Testament backdrop to Paul's thought. It's like when it's like when Eternal Torment advocates quote 
Mark 9:48, and they fail to understand that when you when you look at the imagery that Jesus is getting this from, it has dead corpses being consumed by fire and eaten by dead worms, which, I mean, they use Mark 9:48 to prove eternal torment. But when you understand its Old Testament background, it actually works against them. And you know, it's actually kind of funny because I was just telling one of one of my one of my friends on Facebook that I I now see Calvinism and eter the eternal torment view of hell as equally defensible. And that should tell you that should tell you how I see the eternal torment view of hell. In fact, I think it's I think not not to get too uh, off subject here, but I think it's even less. I think it's even less defensible than Calvinism. But anyway, it's not about. This passage is not about unconditional election. God chose Israel over Edom to be His chosen people, the people whom the the people whom the Messiah would come into the world and through whom salvation would come to the entire world. See Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 to 3, Genesis 18, 18, Genesis 22, 18, Psalm chapter 67 verses 1 to 2, Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 to 4, Jeremiah 3, 17, and Romans chapter 4 verses 12 to 18. In offering the examples of one, Isaac over Ishmael, two, Jacob over Esau, and appealing to Hosea 2.23, Paul was defending God's prerogative to choose whomever he wants by whatever means he wants. Paul was telling his Jewish readers that none of what he's saying should come as a surprise to them. It should not be surprising that God wants to make a faith-based covenant with the Gentiles. Paul appeals to various Old Testament passages to make the case that this had always been God's goal from the very beginning. Those who place their faith in Jesus are the people God decides to save. One's ethnicity doesn't matter. Observance to Torah doesn't matter. God decreed that all who trust in Yeshua Messiah for salvation will be saved. This is exactly why Paul goes on to say in the very next chapter, in verses 12 to 13, that, quote, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, end quote. So, ironically, Paul's burden in Romans 9 isn't to restrict the isn't to restrict the scope of God's election to a few lucky chosen individuals throughout human history. Instead, Paul's burden is to widen the scope of God's election, which was previously thought to only include ethnic Jews. But as we've seen throughout the book of Romans, Paul argues that ethnicity doesn't mean diddly squat in the eyes of Yahweh Elohim. What matters to Yahweh Elohim is faith in him and obedience to him. Election is primarily corporate. God has, has chosen a people for himself, a corporate entity. But it is up to 
us, by our response of faith, whether or not we choose to be members of that corporate group destined to salvation. Now, um, there, there are additional considerations. When you, when you turn over to chapter 10, uh, um, you, you still see him talking about Israel and Gentiles. And in chapter 11, he talks about how he asks, did God reject his people? Did, 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 by no means, I am an Israelite myself. This is Paul talking. A descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. The God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble? So, okay, oh, I read beyond what I meant to read. Uh, that's Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Now, late in the, in the next few verses, Paul says, Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? That's Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. Now here's what, I, here's what I want to point out. Paul doesn't seem to think that the Jews he has in mind are irrevocably lost. They are lost, that's, that's for sure. But Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that some of them will come to faith later on. He asks rhetorically if they've stumbled beyond recovery, and he says, not at all. Now, on the Calvinist view of Romans 9, what Paul says in Romans 11 is unintelligible. If Romans 9 were saying, oh, God selected these Jews, they were causally determined by God to not believe in Jesus, or uh, rather, they weren't given irresistible grace to believe in Jesus. He, he chose them for, for perdition. He chose them not to be saved. If, if Romans 9 is about uh, trying to justify God arbitrarily saving some and condemning others, then why does Paul say that they are not beyond recovery? 
if the Calvinist view were correct, they absolutely would be beyond recovery. God didn't choose them. God won't zap them with the irresistible grace they need to repent. And therefore, as J according to John 6.44, they can't repent. And if they can't repent, they can't be saved. Ask any Calvinist, and they will tell you that those whom God has not chosen to save have no chance. The elect are the elect, and the reprobate are the reprobate. God has made a choice of who would be elect and who would be reprobate, reprobate from eternity past, and nothing can or will ever change that. However, this statement by Paul in chapter 11 is problematic for the Calvinist view of Romans 9. The, the people that... Uh, that are fallen did not stumble beyond recovery and they will be saved later some of them will at least additionally in Romans 11:32, Paul writes quote for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all end quote God has bound ever everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all Remember the con excuse me, remember the context of this verse. Paul mentions that the reason that God orchestrated the world in such a way so that the Jews would initially reject Christ, now you can interpret that as deterministic or uh, as Molinistic, a middle knowledge style orchestration. That's not germane to the point here. The point here is that God knew that if the Jews rejected Christ, salvation would go to the Gentiles. But Paul says in 11.32, everyone has been bound to disobedience so that God could have mercy on them all. In other words, God's ultimate goal in this is to save all people. God bound everyone to have mercy on everyone. Remember what I said earlier, uh, or just a few moments ago? I said Paul's burden in Romans 9 is not to restrict the scope of God's election, but to broaden the scope of election. Romans 11 tells us that initially God wanted the Jews to reject him, but he, didn't, he doesn't want to reject them forever. Let's interpret scripture in light of scripture here. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God wanted an initial but not final rejection because he knew he, wa he, wanted he knew that j salvation would go to the Gentiles as a result. This is what Paul explicitly says in Romans chapter 11, verse 11. He says, quote, Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. End quote. This is also why Paul goes on in Romans 11 to give the illustration of an olive tree with natural branches. The natural branches are ethnic unbelieving Jews, these branches are broken off so that unnatural branches, i.e. believing Gentiles, could be grafted in. This is in Romans chapter 11 verses 13 to 24. God's goal is to save as many people as he can. This is because, again, 
He desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 This is why, according to Paul, an initial non-final rejection of Christ to, by the Jews is something that fits within the plan of God. Because the salvation has come to Gentiles like me because of it. Now, that raises another question, though. Why did Paul think that Jews had to initially reject Christ in order for salvation to come to Gentiles? Well, this is just speculation on my part, but Paul might have said that because he was thinking back to that incident in Acts chapter 18. In Acts 18, Paul preached to the Jews, and they rejected his message. And Paul said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 18, verse 6. Paul might have had that... Paul might have been thinking about that in the back of his mind, and he might have been thinking, if they hadn't rejected the gospel, I might not have made the decision to make my ministry primarily targeted towards Gentiles. I don't know. That's, that's possible. Now, I want to... I want to say, hey, what if the Calvinist... What if the Calvinist interpretation were correct? Let's say, let's say the Calvinist is right. Let's, I don't think he is. I think, I, th I think the context, I think it, Romans 9 only supports unconditional election if you just completely divorce it from everything Paul said before chapter 9 and everything he says after chapter 9. If you take his words in chapter 9 in isolation, well, yeah, you know, it kind of looks like unconditional election. But in context, which is how we're supposed to read scripture, it doesn't. But let's, you know, what if, what if the Calvinist says, no, Mr. Minton, you're still wrong. It still supports unconditional election. Well, as a Molinist, that doesn't bother me. Luis de Molina, did, he, himself, he agreed with John Calvin's exegesis of Romans 9. But because he saw solid biblical evidence that God desires all people to be saved, that Jesus died on the cross for every human being, uh, that human beings have libertarian free will. Uh, he couldn't see it in the same deterministic sort of way that Calvin did. M Molina affirmed unconditional election, but he reconciled it with the, Ar with the aforementioned Arminian teachings by appealing to God's middle knowledge. Now, what is middle knowledge? Well, for the new for the newbies who may be tuning into the podcast for the very first time, um, Molina. Let me let me just say, Molina taught that God predestines individuals to salvation via His middle knowledge. In between, in between His knowledge of what every free of what every creature could do his natural knowledge, and what every creature will do, his free knowledge, Molina taught that logically prior to God's free knowledge was God's decree to create the world. And logically prior to that was his knowledge of what every free creature would choose in any given circumstance in which they could find himself. Logically prior to God's creative decree, God knew 
what any free creature would freely choose to do in any given circumstance they found themselves in. For Melina, God's creative decree is the foundation of his free knowledge, or that's, that, that's synonymous with foreknowledge. But God's foreknowledge, or God's free knowledge, was founded on which of the feasible worlds God knew about in his middle knowledge. In this way, Molina found a way to reconcile libertarian freedom with meticulous providence and predestination. For we choose what we would freely choose to do in any given circumstance, and based on that, God chooses what we will freely choose. We choose what we would... We determine what we would choose, and God, and based on that, God chooses what we will do. Uh, that's that's how Randy Everest of Possible Worlds put it. If God knows, if Bob were in circumstance X, he would freely choose A instead of B. Let A stand for coming to Christ in this instance then if God wants Bob to choose A, coming, come, choose to come to Christ, he can actualize a world in which Bob finds himself in circumstance X, and ergo, Bob freely chooses A. God brings it about that Bob chooses A by placing Bob in circumstance X, because that's the circumstance in which God knew Bob would make this decision, but Bob's libertarian free will is intact. Since God chose which possible world to actualize before that world actually came to be, it can be said that God predestined Bob's choosing of A. Although God desires all to be saved and made salvation available for all to receive, a possible world in which everyone freely responds to God's grace may have been infeasible for him to actualize. In any world God could create with free creatures, it may be the case that in all of them, some freely choose to respond to his grace and others freely choose to reject him. No matter when and where God decides uh, where pe when and where people will be born, no matter how he arranges the pieces of the, uh, the chess pieces on the chessboard, so to speak, uh, no matter what, any world of free creatures has some rejecting Christ and some accepting Christ. Now, depending on, you know, people who receive Christ and people who reject Christ may differ from world to world, depending on what kind of circumstances people find themselves in. So it, it very well may have been the case that God could have actualized a world in which William Lane Craig was an atheist and Richard Dawkins was a famous Christian apologist, uh... It could be the case that in some worlds, some of the some some people who are elect in the actual world are damned in this other non-actual possible world, and vice versa. Some of the people who are condemned in the actual world are actually saved in other feasible worlds. But what's not feasible is for God to bring about a world in which everyone chooses not to resist the Holy Spirit. See Acts chapter 7 verse 51. Yes, Acts 7 51 says that people can resist the Holy Spirit and that the people putting Stephen on trial were actually doing so. 
that doesn't really seem to fit with Irresistible Grace. But anyway, on the Middle Knowledge Scheme, God decided to actualize a world where certain people accept him and others reject him. Not because he wanted these others to reject him, but simply because given the way that people would choose in the circumstances they find themselves in, it was infeasible to get everyone to freely choose them. Yeah, God could force everyone into heaven, but it may not have been feasible to get everyone to freely fall in line. Freely. On the Molinist view, God chooses to save some, chooses not, you know, he chooses a world in which some are saved and others are lost. This is, God doesn't want anyone lost. 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and Ezekiel 18, 23 explicitly say, to the contrary, that God wants all people to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, and he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather prefers that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Ezekiel 18.23 But, according to Molina, a world in which universal salvation takes place could very well be infeasible. And therefore, it, you know, if God could have his way, he would predestine everyone to salvation via his middle knowledge, but that may not be feasible for him. For more information... Uh, for more information on uh, Luis de Molina's soteriology, I have to recommend Kirk McGregor's biography on Molina called Luis de Molina, The Life and Theology of the Founder of Mental Knowledge. Now, my point here is this. I, I don't think that an unconditional election reading of Romans 9 is correct. I think it is very, very, very wrong. You, you have to just completely ignore the rules of hermeneutics to come to that conclusion. But, my soteriology would not lose anything if I conceded the point. Now, I can imagine some Calvinists in the audience might be upset at that. They may, they may be uh, saying, oh, you're saying heads I win, tails you lose. Um, and some may also object, oh, Molina's non-deterministic view of unconditional election is just pure philosophy rather than, rather than being exegeted from the scriptures. You know, not like compatibilism. Yeah, that, that's, that's totally non-philosophical and taken purely from the text. Um, to this potential objection, let me just say this. Molina's non-deterministic view of unconditional election is preferable over Calvin's if it can be established, and it can be, that the Bible teaches, one, that God loves all people, Two, God wants all people to be saved. Three, Jesus died on the cross for all people. Four, God sends grace to all people. Five, that grace is resistible. And six, that men have libertarian free will. If these things, these six things are firmly established by Scripture, then we must, if we're, if we're forced to accept an unconditional election reading, uh, of Romans 9, then we must accept Molina's, we must become Molinists. Otherwise, otherwise, we'd have to concede that the Bible contradicts itself. Any systematic theology must be able to explain all of Scripture. Now, I, I am a Molinist partly because I think Molinism can explain all of the soteriological data 
for scripture. And although I don't think Romans 9 teaches unconditional election, there are some other passages where I think it probably does. Um, and so I, but I, the biblical evidence for unlimited atonement and God's universal salvific will, not to mention the maximally great argument against Calvinism, is just, it's too powerful. I can't be a full-blown Calvinist. And so if you're interested in, in, in more on this, uh, check out my paper, The Soteriological Case for Molinism. It's on CerebralFaith.net. Uh, it's available as a PDF. But I also read this paper aloud here on the podcast. Uh, let, me go, let me go check on CerebralFaith.net on the podcast page what episode that was. Will it even go, let me go that far? It was pretty early in the podcast. It was like, uh, it was episode 12. Yes, episode 12, the soteriological case for Molinism. So if you don't want to do a whole bunch of reading and you want me to do the reading for you, uh, go check out episode 12 of the Cerebral Faith podcast called The Soteriological Case for Molinism. My conclusion, therefore, is, is that Calvinists do not correctly interpret Romans 9. They think that it teaches God has this sort of eeny, meeny, miny, mo approach to saving people. You know, he picks, the, he, he picks and chooses who to save and who to burn. But that is not what Paul is saying in Romans 9. Paul is saying that faith in Christ and not Jewish ethnicity is what will determine whether you are of God's people or not. Verses 14 to 20 isn't saying that God picks and chooses who to save and who to burn and tells his audience to, to just shut up. You know, who are you, old man, to question God? Paul is saying not to judge God on the basis that he chose to damn some Jews and to save some Gentiles because... God picked a certain criteria for salvation, faith in Christ. The Jews didn't meet that criterion, uh, and, and Paul appeals to the Old Testament to say, hey, it was always the case that you had to have belief, you had to have faith in God to be saved. It was never on the basis of ethnicity, and it was never on the basis of works. You know, as, as Paul says, hey, Abraham was uh, credited righteous before he was even circumcised. So, so the Paul's audience cannot indict God of injustice simply because he doesn't take their ethnicity and all their good works into account. Paul appeals to the Old Testament to, to make his case that it was always God's intention to bring Gentiles into the divine family. Now, at first glance, if you if if you're a new Christian and you encounter a Calvinist and he pulls out some of the verses uh, from Romans nine, it might it might st it might floor you. You might think, "Oh gosh, is this really what God does?" Uh, kind of looks like it, but when you when you do the hard work of exegesis and you actually look at those verses and and the entire chapter. In its context, its immediate context, what comes before and after chapter 9, and of course looking at the Old Testament context, 
of the ver of the Old Testament verses that Paul cites, if you do all of that, then you can't see unconditional election in the text. It's just not there. And I am sick and tired of Calvinists telling me, oh, well, you should just, you should go read Romans 9 if you're so skeptical of Tulip. Go read Romans 9. Uh, I've read Romans 9. I've read it in context. And that's why I'm not convinced of Calvinism. And even if, and even if I was convinced that it taught unconditional election, I can't embrace the full tulip because many, 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 many biblical passages in both testaments contradict the middle part of the tulip, uh, that limited atonement and irresistible grace that every it, that God just zaps people and irresistibly draws them to salvation and that he only wants certain few saved. That's just not, that's just not tenable. It's, it's. It's really, I, I really, I just don't know why people continue to believe this nonsense. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Um, shout out to my Cerebral Faith patrons, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan L. Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan D. Hampton, Austin Long, Kevin Walker, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to support the Cerebral Faith Ministry, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. If I can get some more patrons, I would buy Adobe Premiere and After Effects, and I would be able to make even better YouTube videos. Uh, and if you were unaware that Cerebral Faith has a YouTube channel, then go to YouTube and type in Cerebral Faith Video. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith God Podcast. God bless, and I will see you next time. Peace out.